Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. I want you to open up to Mark chapter 5 this morning, if you would, if you've got a Bible, uh, digital, paper, or whatever, uh, open that up to Mark chapter 5. I want you to know from the very get-go this morning that this passage is very strange. This is a strange passage of Scripture. It's awesome, but it's not something we're used to seeing and thinking about here in our, our time. Um, I also want to let you know that the response to this passage is not going to be a list of things to do or ways to change externally necessarily. The response to this passage is very much an internal change of our minds and our hearts. There's a lot of passages that say, so out of this, here's what we need to do. This passage is not as much a do thing as much as a think and believe response. This passage is about your mind and your heart, what you believe and who you believe in, who you trust. Have any of you ever heard of a man named Peter Carpen? Peter Carpen, of course you haven't. Barely anyone's heard of him. But let me tell you about him. Uh, in 1914, Peter Carpen was a German spy during World War I. He spied on the French, so he moved into France, pretended to be a Frenchman. Well, he was caught in the act of spying. He was jailed, but then the French did something really smart. They assumed his identity. So the Germans would send him letters, and they would intercept them and write back to them for years, sending false information, sending false intelligence, and leading the Germans on a wild rabbit chase of where uh, certain things were and where resources for the French were and, and, and caused a lot of trouble by assuming his identity. But not only that, the Germans were constantly sending Peter Carpen money to do what he needed to do to buy the things he needed to buy to live. So the French just saved it and saved it and saved it and saved it and saved it. Now, later on, Peter Carpen somehow vanished. He he just, he he just disappeared and he escaped imprisonment. And so the French were like, what are we going to do with all this money? I mean, we don't have him anymore. We can't pretend that he's still here. What are we going to do with the money? And so they said, let's buy a car. So they bought a really nice car with the money. Later on, in I believe it was 1923, yes, 1923, uh, after the war was over, the, uh, the French were uh, sent a delegation over to Germany to, to just uh, work on some peace issues and work on some uh, compliance issues that the Germans weren't uh, in after the war. And so uh, they brought this car just kind of as a, you know, in-your-face kind of a thing to, to uh, Germany, and that's what the delegates to Germany were driving around. Well, one day while they're driving around in Germany, that car struck a pedestrian and killed them. And the driver getting out of the car and going and seeing who they had hit was astonished to find out that the person they hit was Peter Carpen, the spy who had been spying on them, who had allowed them to buy the car, was killed by that car that the Germans invested in. What an ironic weird story, but it's true. Here's why I want to share that story with you. It is so easy for us right now in this time that we're in to see, and even not in this time, even if coronavirus wasn't here, you look around the world and it's so hard because we see all that is broken and evil. And sometimes we can feel that the devil has an upper hand. 
But in bringing all of the destruction and the pain and the evil and chaos that the devil does bring, I want you to know, and this passage here tells us this, he is tying his own noose. He's building the car that's going to run him over. Every time you see darkness, every time you see evil, every time you see chaos, we can grieve it, we can wish it were different, but don't you for one second believe that God is out of control. God is allowing this enemy of ours to tie his own noose, to build the car that's going to run him over in the middle of the street one day. That is what this passage in Matthew 5 comes down to. Here we will see great evil and great suffering. But in the midst of the darkness, we will see a king rise up and change the narrative and leverage the darkness for victory. And in this very hard season we're in, I pray that this passage resounds in your heart with this very clear truth. That every time you see darkness, every time you see chaos and pain and confusion and destruction, remember that this is our enemy, Satan, tying his own noose building his own car that's going to run him over. Now, directly before this passage, Jesus is on this boat in the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. A storm hits, and Jesus, with just a word, wields complete power over nature and calms the storm. And the very last thing we read in chapter 4, right before we get into this passage, is this. It's the very last quote. One of the disciples asks, Who then is this? that even wind and sea obey him. The waves and wind still know his name. Ask this question, who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? Their perspective of Jesus just got widened incredibly. And it's here in Mark 5 as if Mark is saying, I'm so glad you asked the question. Let me show you exactly who this Jesus is. Mark 5 Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. Now, this was a Gentile region. Before, Jesus has been in the Jewish regions in Israel. This is a Gentile region. And so they're coming into this place where they haven't yet ministered to the people there. Verse 2, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, evil spirit, a demon. He's demon-possessed, as some would call it or demon-oppressed as others would. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. A metal chain could not bind this man, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. You see, the man that Mark describes is about as hopeless a case as there could be. He's infested with demons. He's in intense pain. He's so strong that he can't be brought under control, but when he's out of control, he cuts himself and wails in pain. This is about as a lost cause as you could possibly see. He is completely controlled by evil, living in a graveyard, in horrible agony, crying out day and night, and harming himself. No one could control him. Now, if you were reading Mark for the first time and you didn't know much about Jesus, 
you might come to the question of, hey, has Jesus finally met his match here? Because you've seen Jesus do some amazing things in Mark, but this man is out of control. You might say, is Jesus finally, has he met his match? This powerful, evil-filled man that a whole community of people couldn't control. Jesus is one man. A whole community of people could not control this man. But read on. Verse 6, and when he, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran, this is amazing, and fell down before him, kneeled before Jesus. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. It is so obvious that these spirits know that Jesus isn't just anybody. They know Jesus' powerful identity, at least in part. And you'll see why in just a bit here. At least in part. But this address to Jesus wasn't just acknowledging Jesus' identity. In, In a way, they were trying to control Jesus. The belief at that time, and some of these magical papyri, these magical writings that uh, other people wrote back at that time show us that oftentimes people believed that by saying a person's name and and spelling out their identity verbally gained control over them. So it looks like these demons are actually trying to gain control over Jesus by saying, I know who you are, your name is Jesus, son of the most high God, I've said your identity, now you have to listen to what I say. And then they adjure him, That's, that's calling down kind of like a curse or calling down by God's name, a vow, saying by God, Don't torment us. But there's a real irony there, isn't there? Saying to Jesus, by God, don't torment us. Maybe not fully realizing how God Jesus was. That they were speaking to God himself. This is ironic. Verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He, the demon-possessed man, replied, my name, actually the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country, them out of the country. So we find out that this man is not plagued with just one spirit, as we've seen in all the people in this book so far who have been released from demons. He's plagued with an army of spirits. He says his name is Legion. Now, a Roman legion at that point was typically around 6,000 men strong. That doesn't necessarily mean that this man was uh, infested with 6,000 demons, but it was a lot. Perhaps it was 2,000 because later on when we see what happens, they destroy a herd of 2,000 pigs. We don't know the exact number. We just know this man had an army of demons living in him. But the surprising part is how the army of demons, army of demons, thousands of them react to Jesus. They kneel before him and beg him not to torture them and send them away. In another one of the Gospels, it says, don't send us to hell, basically, before the appointed time. An army of demons faced with one Jesus, and what do they do? They bow and they beg. This wasn't even a close fight. They didn't even throw a punch. They saw Jesus, threw themselves down at his feet, and threw in the towel immediately. So I want to pause right now and catch this moment and ask you, how big is your God? 
the one you conceive of in your mind and the one that you have and thought about and felt about in your heart. Have you estimated him correctly? How big is he? Because I know for me, the waves and wind come and my God can become very small in my mind and in my heart. Can I get an amen on that? It is so hard to see the greatness of God through the pain, through the suffering, through the difficulty. But these demons saw him very clearly. Very clearly. We can look around us and feel hopeless or lash out for control, but in the face of Jesus, a whole army of demons bow and cry and beg. We have seriously got to expand our view of Jesus, church. I'm going to say that again because you did not say amen. We have seriously got to expand our view of Jesus. At home, amen. We must. We do not. I don't care what you see of Jesus right now. I guarantee you, you do not see him as great as he is. It's a lifelong journey and then a death journey to be able to see him as great as he is. We've got to expand our view of Jesus. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they began, they begged him, the demons begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. 2,000 of them. This is a disturbing picture. But the disturbing picture isn't just because all this innocent animal life died. Really, the disturbing picture is this, that the, the, sorry, the destruction of the pigs really is a picture of this man's future had Jesus not intervened. This is 2,000 pigs that were utterly destroyed, a whole herd of animals, but all these demons had been indwelling one man. Can you imagine the destruction in his life had Jesus not intervened? With just a word, not a power struggle, not a physical fight, with just a word, Jesus owns this demon army, completely owns them. And in so doing, Jesus further establishes who he is. And through the gospel of Mark, we see an even clearer picture of who Jesus is. He's the son of God, Messiah, God in the flesh, who has no foe that can overcome him. That is the Jesus we preach. That is the Jesus that this Bible we read paints for us. He is utterly powerful and unbeatable. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it, what it was that hap had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they, the people of the towns who had come to see what happened, they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. It's weird. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. This is the same language used earlier of the disciples, that they might be with him. He wants to be one of Jesus' disciples. And he, Jesus, did not permit the man, but said to him, this is awesome, 
Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he, the one who used to be demon-possessed, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's a, that's a group of 10 cities in this region that were Gentile. He began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Why in the world would these people who've been living with this man who has been completely out of control, screaming through the night, not even able to be shackled with chains, why in the world would they ask Jesus to leave once he fixes the problem? Jesus doesn't land on your shore and leave everything unchanged. That's why. It's because Jesus is a disruptor of the brokenness and devastation we live in. Jesus comes, and when he comes, he changes things. And some of us don't want change. The truth is that some of us prefer our brokenness. And if we stay in that state of brokenness and not allowing Jesus to change us, to redeem us, to save us, never surrendering to Jesus, Jesus will honor our choice of choosing an eternity without him in hell. He honors the choices we make if we reject him as our savior. And he gives us what we ask for, which is I don't want you so that means I don't want you for an eternity. This is grave, and this is serious. And I want you to begin to think, if you have not yet surrendered your heart to Jesus, what that means for your future. But surrender to the King, Jesus, changes the entire trajectory of our lives. This man asked to go with Jesus, and Jesus said no. Now, this wasn't rejection, church. This was redirection. You see, the Gentile world needed to hear the goodness of Jesus too. And I want to tell you right now, the Apostle Paul, as great as he was as a missionary to the Gentiles, was not the first missionary to the Gentiles. King Jesus took a man controlled by an army of demons, like a doomed animal, and he turned him into the first missionary to the Gentile world. This man who has overcome with an army of demons and Jesus intervened is the first missionary to the rest of the world outside of Israel. Amazing. Jesus used Satan's designs as kindling for God's kingdom. Do you see how Jesus let Satan tie his own noose? Do you see how God converts darkness and chaos and evil for his glory? Moves on to another story now. It says this in verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he what? Fell at his feet. This is the second time we've seen someone fall at Jesus' feet in this passage. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. So Jairus is a synagogue ruler. This is a very important man in a Jewish community. He was in charge of the Jewish house of worship, which was called the synagogue. So the temples in Israel, it's this big, huge complex where they go and do sacrifices and worship. But the synagogue was all, there were synagogues all over Israel and all the towns. And this was like a smaller place of worship for Jews who couldn't be at the temple on, on a Saturday to worship in their hometown. This man was responsible for the local church. 
But he also kneels before Jesus, knowing he is no ordinary person. And his request to Jesus is to save his daughter before she dies. Notice that. She's at the point of death. Would you save her, Jesus, before she dies? Because everyone knows that death is final. That nothing can be done once you cross that line, right? Or wrong. 24, halfway through the verse. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So he takes a little aside here. He's going to tell us another little story intertwined with this story about Jairus' daughter. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So this woman who was in this crowd, her physical condition put her in Israel in a state of being what they would have called unclean, ceremonially unclean. She was virtually untouchable for 12 years. 12 years of having a status of unclean. And she had impoverished herself, paying doctors, and now she's worse than she was before. She was an outcast and lived in constant shame. To no fault of her own. This was not her fault. And even the way she approaches Jesus is such a contrast to the others. Even the demons come face to face, bow before him. Jairus comes face to face, bows before him, but she sneaks up behind him in a crowd just to try to grab his cloak. Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she had said to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples' response is so funny. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing about you, and yet you say, who touched me? Jesus, you need to take a nap. You need to eat some food. Why are you asking this dumb question? And he ignores them, and he looked around, verse 32, to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, why would this woman be so afraid of what she had done and admitting it? You see, in this day, what she did would have been seen as shocking. If you were a Jew reading Mark, you would have said... She shouldn't have done that. I mentioned before that her state was unclean under the laws of Israel. You think your quarantine has been rough. Twelve years, everything she touched became unclean. Anything she made or wanted to sell at a market, she couldn't because it would have been unclean. If she wanted to go to the market, she had to be very careful if she could go at all or have to send someone else. She couldn't go into the temple courts because of her status. She probably couldn't even go into the local synagogue. She couldn't even go to church. Like I said, you think your quarantine has been bad. Twelve years of this. Imagine living in quarantine not for a month or eight months or a year or whenever this crazy thing ends. Twelve years. And it's only you. Any one she touched would also have become ceremonial unclean. And so that's why in this day, reading this, you would have said, 
She should not have done that because she reached out and touched Jesus' cloak. And so reaching out and touching Jesus would have been a shocking, bold move because all who witnessed this knew she had just made Jesus unclean. Or had she? 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, it's not as clear in the English that we're reading it in because of the translation, but when Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well, that made you well is translated from this Greek word sozo. And this word is the word that is used to say deliver and to save. Your faith has delivered you. Your faith has saved you is exactly what Jesus said. Her faith in Jesus has saved her from more than just illness. You see, the religious elite of that day would have been teaching that purity and holiness before God comes from what you do. That if you want to be in good standing with God, you must follow the law and do all the right things. But Jesus turns this on its head in this moment and says, you can't make you clean. Church, you can't make you clean. Only Jesus can. It is faith in the Son of God that heals our brokenness and not just physical illness, but more importantly, spiritual illness, spiritual brokenness, sin, the sin curse we live under. You cannot make yourself clean. Jesus says only he can. Instead of her impurity making Jesus unclean, his purity makes her clean. It's a reverse of everything they'd ever seen. Everyone who was in an unclean state had always, when they touched something, it made that thing unclean. But in this scenario, Jesus is touched by this woman. Instead of him becoming unclean, his purity transfers to her. What a beautiful picture of what happens to us spiritually when we put our faith in Jesus. An impure person, we don't make God unclean. He makes us clean. His purity transfers to us, not our own. His transferred to us. And any religion or teaching that tells you that you can clean yourself or that you can be good enough to earn salvation is a lie. No action, no sacrifice, no ritual that you perform of your own can make you clean. Only an encounter of faith in Jesus can make you clean. It is Jesus who cleanses, Jesus who forgives, Jesus who gives us his righteousness to be able to stand before a holy God and to stand holy before a holy God through faith. Jesus says to her, daughter. He calls her daughter. What a tender thing. Jesus not only allows broken people to approach him, he welcomes them. He welcomes us and calls us son, calls us daughter. When we approach him in faith with all of our impurity, and we reach out and touch him in faith. He says, son, daughter. Jesus takes on not only sickness and sin and the devil, but Jesus now, we're gonna see, takes on death itself. This is amazing. Don't, when we get here into verse 35, don't let your mind go back into all the times you've heard this. And just, I've heard this story before. It's, it's old to me. Just think about it in real time. A little girl is dead. She's actually dead. 
She has no pulse. She has no brain waves. She's not breathing. And this is what happens. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, Jairus' house, someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? What's the point? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only what? Only believe. Only believe. Believe there is the same word he uses to commend the woman that he healed. He says, your faith has saved you. Believe is that same root word, just in verbal form. 37, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They mocked him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, his disciples, and went in there where the child was. Just maybe close your eyes and imagine this. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi. Now this is in Aramaic, most likely the language Jesus commonly spoke. Mark wants us to vividly see this exactly as it happened. Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking around, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. She's died and raised life. She needs some food, guys. She's hungry. He even takes care of her need, her immediate need. These are two miracles. 12 years in the making. Did you see that? The woman's been bleeding for 12 years. This daughter has been living, coming to her day of death for 12 years. The woman's illness started the same year that this girl was born, and both of them are on this parallel path to encounter with Jesus for 12 years. And Mark includes this very small but striking detail. Jesus took the dead girl by the hand. You see, the tenderness of Jesus. But this would also make him ceremonially, what? Unclean. Touching a dead body. And yet, once again, instead of being made impure, Jesus instead purifies what was unclean. He makes what was dead alive. He doesn't become unclean by the dead body. She comes to life. His purity passes to her, and she is now, instead of dead, she's alive. I want you to notice in all three of these situations, it is just Jesus' word alone that delivers, that saves, that does the miracle. With just a phrase, Jesus conquers the last enemy, death. Everyone thought that death was the end for this girl. Don't bother the teacher anymore. He comes to the house anyway. Oh, she's not dead, but she's sleeping. Ah, ha, ha, funny, Jesus, you're dumb. No, he's Lord. His words, just his words, and life bursts into existence. Does this remind you of any other part of the Bible? Words making 
life burst into existence? Genesis 1. Genesis 1. God himself creates life and all there is by just speaking. Jesus is shown to be God by doing exactly what God does. Someone in chapter 4 said, who is this Jesus? Who is he that he could control the wind and the waves? And Mark says, I'm glad you asked, and I want to show you specifically. And he shows us with just words, Jesus bringing life into existence. And by so doing, he says, Jesus is God. By speaking life into existence. And I must ask you again, how big is your God? The concept, not how big is he really, but the conception you have of God in your mind, of Jesus, as he relates to you in your life right now. Does your mental image and your emotional image of him match the magnitude of what we read in this story? Mine doesn't. Because I have a bad week and I say, God, where are you? We are all certainly going through a very difficult time. Let's be honest. This has stunk, hasn't it? And it still does. And especially living in California, it probably still will for 7,000 years. (laughs) Don't let that make you lose hope. It's been rough. And, And these past months have been, for some of us, the most difficult we've ever gone through. For others not, but for some it has. And and to me, this pandemic that we've gone through uh, and are going through has revealed some spiritual giants in our midst. I've come in contact with some people whose faith is so large, it puts me to shame. Been so impressed by the spiritual giants we have in our midst here at this church that no one would have noticed before. But this pressure and this hardship has just popped them to the surface as people who trust God completely. And at the same time as believers, some of us find ourselves reacting rashly to this. We're impatient. We're panicking. We're fighting with each other. We're using harsh words. And we're, some of us, even abandoning relationships and losing hope. And if so, I want to tell you, you have a merciful Savior who says, son, daughter, come to me. I want to heal you. He understands your heartache. He understands the struggle. And he's very gracious with the mistakes we've all made during this time. I just want to say that to you and encourage you with that. And at the same time, I want to challenge you. I wonder, with all that has happened, if the problem is really the pandemic or if our problem is really the government response to the pandemic or who's going to get voted in and who's not? Or is it something deeper? Maybe this pandemic hasn't caused a crisis for us. Maybe it has revealed a crisis of faith in the church that was already there. But it was covered and hidden by our comfort and by our prosperity. The crisis that is being uncovered is this, that our conception of Jesus, who he truly is, and what he is truly capable of is only a shadow of what it should be. 
that in our minds and in our hearts, our God, our Savior Jesus, is far too small. That's the crisis right now in the church. It's been revealed in a lot of us, in myself. I will gladly and shamefully include myself in that, that this crisis, this place we've been in, this hardship has revealed just how faithless I can be. And I just want to put it out there to you to consider that maybe we have been brought low so that the king can lift us up and build our faith. Maybe he's brought us low so that he can heal us. Maybe he's broken us so he can bind us. Consider it. I want to invite the band up. We're going to sing one last song. As they come up, though, I want to ask this question to you. So who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus we read about? I'll tell you, family, he's the one who the wind, the waves, the demons, disease, and death bow to. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the king of the earth and is the champion who can face down and destroy the devil, disease, and even death. He is our champion. He is the one that we should get behind. He's the one whose yard sign we should be putting in our grass. Jesus is our champion. There is no enemy that Jesus can't defeat on your behalf. I'll say it again. There is no enemy you have or struggle you have that Jesus cannot defeat on your behalf. He beat an army of demons. He beat sickness for 12 years. He beat death in a 12-year-old girl. You have no problem, no enemy, nothing that you face that he cannot beat. And I can't tell you every reason God is allowing all the experiences we're having right now. There's probably a lot. But I tell you for sure that one reason is this. God is uncovering the faithlessness in his church. Not to shame us, but to heal us. Not to guilt us, but to bring life to us again. Our response should be to ask God every day, every day, increase my faith. Increase my faith. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief should be our prayer every single day. Faith, just like the man set free from demons who told his world about the mercy of God. Faith like the sick woman who knew that no matter what she faced or how long she faced it, if she could only have Jesus, she had all she needed. And faith like Jairus, who risked playing the fool and walked with Jesus past the line of the impossible, past the line of death, and through faith, Jairus saw new life. That's how we respond 
to Jesus. Faith, belief, trust. Because he's worthy, he's good, and he loves us to the very bitter end. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.